I didn't realize. I, I didn't even think about the carpeting, like insulating the heat. It gets hot. Anyways. Yeah. All right. We're live. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ricardo. Thank you. How do you pronounce your last name? Arazzo. Arazzo. Yeah. That's, well, I could have figured that one out. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know because it has like the hyphen, you know, the Arazzo. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, that that's just like for formal because uh. it's like a... Uh, in in my country, we have two last names. Oh. Uh, so one is from my paternal. I mean, one comes from, from my paternal yeah, yeah. side and one from my maternal side. Oh, interesting. Right, yeah. That's how they but, do it in Ecuador? Yeah. Did you do... No, well, you went to grad school in... In Atlanta. In, in Atlanta, right? Yeah. But did you do, like, undergrad in Ecuador or did you uh, also... I, oh. I did my undergrad... Um, it was part in uh, this community college in D.C., oh, and then part of it was in Chicago. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of cool. Anyways, so you're uh, doing neuroscience, computational neuroscience. Yes. Was your background in the leeches? Yeah, that's that was my dissertation. Yeah. So how did so so back it up? So how did you did you do neuroscience or physiology or anything like that in undergrad? No. Uh, well, I did. Uh, well, my my focus was all, always uh, doing computational neuroscience in grad school. Ah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, because I learned about uh, computational neuroscience maybe like my junior year in uh, college. Ah. And I just fell in love with it so much. I I learned principles from from it in other classes, like the Hevian rule. Uh, you know, it's uh, this psychologist mathematician that came out with, you know, essentially the, you know, this rule that, Hevian rule that it's that synapses, synapses that uh, fire together, wire together. Oh, yeah, yeah, the and, Hevian you know, plasticity. Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the principles come from, uh, you know, he, him. And I learned from that, and it it was just, it just opened up a, a world that it was, um, you know, very interesting to me, just under, you know, you know, um, representing human uh, memory uh, with these equations, some sort of mathematical type of equation. Did you have Did you have a heavy mathematical background? Yes, I always loved math. Oh, mm-hmm. see, that's my downfall. Is that I didn't, I never had a math background. I only made it up to like algebra, hmm. and then somehow skirted my way around the system. You know, until I get to the point. I mean, now. With a lot of the online tools, you can get away with less mathematics for the most part because all the stats programs do it for you. I mean, as long you need to know how to like drive the train per se, you know, you need to know what to use where. But a lot of the things can do it for you. Yeah, that's what it is all about. I mean, uh, you know, you you what you do really like doing the math is just like you know, um, coming up with a problem and putting it in a way that's quantifiable. Oh, uh, yeah. And then just let computer solve it. I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, if even even like most brilliant uh, physici- uh, physicists, uh, they use like Wolfram Alpha. So yeah. I mean, we're we're in a world that we have all these resources. We have to use them. It's not like we are in the 1800s. We're Isaac <laughs> Newton trying to derive like gravity. We're not just cutting things off and seeing yeah. what happens. Yeah, that, that's true. So anyway, so you so you you did some math. You did some neuroscience fell in love with heavy and plasticity and yes. other neurosciencey type of mechanisms figuring out how to use mathematical equations to quantify biological things which i it's really cool actually when you try to do it you know we've, i've talked about it before where there's sort of that split sometimes between the engineering type of approach into biology and then the experimentalist type of approach where you know with a lot of the engineering or computational type of background it's very much like here's the equation here's the law here's how it works and if you run a simulation there's a minimal amount of variability and this is what happens every time and then you go into the biological system for the experimentalists and then we sort of have this approach of like we're just gonna see what happens because weird things happen in animals all the time and there's a lot of things that are unexpected and so there used to be i know a little bit more of a clash but now it's less of a a clash between the fields where i think they're complementing each other very much so yeah i definitely feel that you know a clash between the fields it it would be just you know it could come from out of just not not understanding each other because they're complementary and uh, experiments are supposed to inform models 
I mean, we, we, there are different models and there are different levels. So there's going to be like some uh, abstract model, models that use like sign functions and, you know, um, unitless variables. They're going to be more, um, accurate, like more accurate, quote unquote. So more, um, like biologically, uh, parameterized, um, models. And those, uh, are heavily influ- uh, influenced by what, uh, was recorded in experiments. All right, so that is how we we came up with uh, our model for the dynamic clamp. That uh, you know, it's one of my, the papers in my dissertation. Right, so to to do the dynamic clamp in the model that we did and estimate intracellular sodium, so that you're estimating a ghost variable inside the neuron. Right, we don't know how much sodium there is, and we there is no way for us to know, uh, but we yeah. can measure um, voltage in real time. And maybe if you have imaging, we can measure calcium. But there, there are no current um, uh, dyes or ways to measure uh, sodium other than just voltage, because you know sodium is also electrically charged, so yeah. you can measure it like that. So the way that we do it is that we have a real-time model that takes, uh, you know, is running in real time. It's the full model of the neuron that it's informed on experiments that have been done on these neurons. So like all of the, um, all of these currents, right? And, Maybe I jump just right in, but the way that we model these these neurons is uh, as circuits, right? Yeah. Just the most simplest. So, most so, simple so, so basically, for computational models mm-hmm. themselves, there's neural networks, which are sort of like these macro level. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just sort of like trying to translate the best I can because I suck at the computational stuff. But so there's like these macro level neural networks that have sort of input output black box kind of things. And then when you dive into certain, can we call it like a biological replicate type of net model where you're trying to understand a biological system by using like com- the, yeah. computational methods? It really depends on what your question is. Yeah. Right? So that, that's, that, that's going to be the, the method. Uh, I mean, that's going to be cut your methods, whether, whatever your approach if it's experimental or computational, right? So what is your question? Are you trying to look at the intricate, uh, dynamics inside a single neuron is this, or are you trying to look at how these, an ensemble of neurons, uh, behaves? Now, yeah. So with the, so with your projects that you were doing in, in the leeches uh-huh. in back the leeches. in, back in Atlanta, uh, to inform sort of sing, was it, were you look, single cell? Single so, cell. Yes. Yeah, single cell. All right. So let's go a little bit over that project. Uh, you, in the leech, uh, there is the central pattern generator. Uh, for your listeners who don't know what that is, it's a um, circuit of rhythmic neurons that, uh, you know, support uh, functions like walking and breathing. They're vital and they happen, you know, without our input. Mm. In the leech, the heart is controlled. Uh, by a set of, but a, a central pattern generator. Uh, it, that, that is not the way that our heart is, by the way. Our yeah. heart has, is totally different, but in the leech, the heart, um, is controlled by a, a central pattern generator that basically just rotates the blood in a circular fashion, these t- longitudinal tubes along the animal. Huh. Okay. So, um, there. Okay, so it's a, it's a true pump. <laughs> it's, yeah. It is in a the true, sense of true, like, it's a rotary pump. type of pump. Yes. 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 Um, uh, then there, there are many neurons that are involved in the CPG, but, um, they're important. What's important for these is that these are rhythmically active, active neurons. So when you isolate them and you see them in vitro, they, they keep the rhythm, although they are uh, synaptically isolated from their network. Ah, so similar to the brainstem for, for breathing kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But these are bigger, so you can actually see them. Oh, like with the naked eye? Uh, I mean, with the 20X. Oh, okay. So that's, so they're still gigantic. Yeah, they're pretty oh. big. Is it, is it similar to like the crustaceans where you can, like every neuron's named? Yeah, almost. Almost. almost I think, uh, I, think <laughs> I always like get a, a kick out of like, the, you know, they do those presentations of Eve Martyr's groups and, in, in, you know, where the stomatogastric ganglion type mm-hmm. of things and they're like, this is neuron SG and you're like, you name the neurons? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you talk to my advisor, Ron Calabrese, he'll... He'll he, name he, every neuron? Yeah, he knows. He's, that's a P neuron. Oh, that's a S neuron. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, in the mouse, we're just like fishing, just sending out a fishing lure and seeing what we can catch. Yeah. And hoping we get some random neuron. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's fascinating. Okay. So, so back it up. So understanding single neuron properties by isolating neurons of the central pattern generator for the leech heart, which yes, is the leech heart. So the leech heart has neurons that are very similar to that of the ones that are found in our brains to an extent. Uh, yeah. I mean, similar. They have similar, uh, um, what you want to call it? Uh, similar membrane similar like membrane properties and, and similar behaviors that are expressed because like a lot of the things in our brain are very rhythmic right and so like so well yeah but um but there are there are currents that are there like the this the fast sodium current is necessary for spiking oh okay um like uh the persistent sodium current it's uh you know low threshold activated current and that is also um you know found in mammalians ah. uh there's the calcium currents uh, H current, you know, H current, we find it everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, this may be a little bug that, you know, it's out in the wild or maybe in the punch sucking some blood out. But, you know, we have a lot of inco- a lot of things in common with these neurons. Yeah. They keep us alive in the same way. I mean, we live in the same world. Yeah, I watched that, that Jove article that you had on the on the uh, technique of isolating the leech heart and recording from it. It was kind of wild, actually, to see... Those little, uh, I don't know, isolated little nerve strips. Oh, yeah. Did you see it? Yeah. It was kind of wild. Because <laughs> I, I was just trying to see, like, you know, what exactly was studied with the different currents. And uh, then I stumbled upon that video and I was like, what is this? And then I saw it isolated. And it was actually, like, a really cool little process. Like, basically, like, take the leech, elongate it, cut it open, and then there's just all of these, like, clearly visible nerves in like these little neuron bundles yeah they're ganglion or ganglion yeah Yeah, i guess wow that's the better term yeah (laughs) the better term for them but it was kind of wild to see it It it's like just a little cluster of grapes that are just like these these neurons and they really are like grapes on when we work with them uh you have a sharp electrode it's made of uh you know microglass yeah and you have to you know we we basically stab it Ah. but we stab it you know, gently. So, because I mean, once, because if you go too hard, it's done and and it's gone, and you need to another an animal. You need to another, start another experiment. Yeah, then that's another couple of hours out of your day. That's yeah, that's gone. Yeah, so you have to be very careful. It really is like a grape, and then you have this like glass knife. You have to be you know precise enough to just poke it and make sure that the needle stays deep inside, deep enough so it won't come out. Yeah. And, um, but not, not too deep that it will, will go through it. Yeah. And then, you know, once, once you, uh, either miss, you have only one shot. So once you either <laughs> miss or get it, you can either go to your experiment or, you know, start again. There's, there's little things that, like, with any sort of patching, I think you, you see a lot of these, like, cool neuron traces and these current traces and voltage traces or whatever from people that go in and they record from single neurons. And I, no, the the pain firsthand as well of like the ability to get that single beautiful trace and to hold it for a certain amount of time is no easy feat. And like, you know, that the amount of hours that was thrown away just to get that one recording, because I don't know if it worked for you, but it always seems to work out where uh, no matter when you start your recordings for the day, the only one that works is always going to be at like seven o'clock at night after you've tried all day to get one whereas like if you if you had just gotten a single neuron bang got it at like 9 a.m you could have been done and left the lab at like noon but it never works well that was that wasn't me uh i it was it was very variable for me sometimes i will get (laughs) i'll get like a good day i'll get like you know one good experiment and then just uh try to go home yeah home for the day <laughs> uh but other days uh you know you get one good experiment and you feel that you know you, you want to keep that momentum going yeah yeah and, but uh, you know it's hard to get two good experiments in one day yeah it almost never happens yeah you just have to take your luck and run yeah but okay so so you get the you isolate the neurons from the leech in order to look at central pattern generating neurons to figure out how neurons themselves can create rhythm or looking at the different internal Different looking at the different currents, channels, all that kind of stuff, modeling it after an electrical circuit. So you mentioned the dynamic clamp. 
dynamic clamp kind of is mind blowing for anyone that's not aware of dynamic clamp. And I only know of dynamic clamp. I've never actually seen it done in practice. So how does the dynamic clamp, like what is the, what is the premise of it? And like, how does it work? Okay. Uh, there, the first dynamic clamp, it, um, basically injects current, injects and read current. Yeah. Serves to inject and read current from a neuron in real time. So it sort of makes like this biological machine interface. Yes. Where you can control. Well, okay. So is it, is it more of the biology? So the, the actual biological neuron itself that you're recording from feeds into the machine to give real time feedback. And then the machine controls the neuron itself by injecting current. Okay. Now let me backtrack and let me just explain you how this works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first there's like multiple levels of dynamic clamp. Uh, oh. So there's going to be like, uh, the most basic one that you can just, um, you know, um, insert a passive, like a leak current. Okay. And you just have a, like a leak current and you literally just stab this neuron and simulate that you, that this neuron has a leak current. Does it actually open up a channel or how? Well, it simulates a channel in the model. Uh, so it's, oh, it's, it gets oh, simulated oh. in the, ch- in the, in the computer. Okay. And then the computer estimates how much current these, uh, these, these, uh, you know, the specific current that gets generated, right? So, uh, out of the equations come out a result that is the current, and that is what get, gets injected into the neuron. Oh, okay. Right? So, let's say that at a given time t, you have a voltage of, I don't know, like negative 50, and then uh, you have your leak current that at that point is going to be like uh, 0.1 amp, right? And that's, that's the estimate by the model. Right, because the, the neuron doesn't have this current. You're estimating this based on whatever parameters of your model. You're estimating that there is this one leak current of 0.1 amp. You can inject that 0.1 amp precisely to the second on that on that uh, neuron based on its properties. So what's now the challenge with this technique is that you have to build a model, and building a very accurate model of a neuron is not is not an easy feat. Yeah. See the the, the um, Model that we built for the dynamic clamp, uh, you know, is based on like decades of dy- of um, um, voltage clamp research on the um, you know rhythmically active neuron of the leech heart. Yeah. So so then so you have so now we have sort of an interface between the neuron itself and the model, and so you can control. Basically, like you sort of have this feedback loop, right? Yes. Yeah, you have a feedback loop, and then yes. you can so then you can test different parameters, or, or you can test different leaks or different currents or whatever on yeah. the cell and see what the effect is. Yeah, right. So uh, you know, in the uh, Hodgkin Huxley formalism, that is, uh, you know, the the one that best most uh, biophysically act, uh, act biophysically accurately describes the. Uh, the neurons, the experimental neurons. That, oh wait, wait. Let me backtrack. The Hodgkin-Huxley formalism is the is the most biophysically detailed family of models, right? And um, wait, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> So, so, so there's, there's different model sets basically that like you have to be able to, to pick a biophysically relevant model in order to study or in order to incorporate that into the cells that are actually being there and creating that model is not necessarily an easy endeavor, even though it seems simple enough because you look in a textbook and you're like, you have sodium, you got potassium, you got calcium, magnesium, chloride easy enough set the voltages or set the concentrations and the cell just does its thing but with your studies essentially if i'm right you're or if, if i'm correct you're looking at being able to change the ability of these neurons to exchange molecules or ions back and forth between inside and outside the cell well that that's uh that's a common misunderstanding so um ah. Okay, so what we do, what we do is we compute uh, electricity, we compute numbers, we compute current. That is something that you can inject into the cell. Mm-hmm. We cannot inject 
10 millimoles of sodium. Yeah. But you can inject 0.1 nanoamps precisely. So, okay. okay, so. So you can't necessarily mimic the biophysics of the ions themselves per se, but you can mimic their end product effects on the electrical. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the actual phenomena. So if this neuron was to exchange, if this, if whatever happens in the, you know, let's say in, <laughs> in our model, in our project, uh, we did the dynamic lamp. We did the sodium potassium pump. Okay. Current, right? So we are estimating how much sodium is in the cell. And then based on, you know, um, one function, we, uh, also know how much potassium is out of the cell. So, um, we put this in this, you know, in this function that estimates how much current there is from the pump. And then we can inject that in real time into the neuron. Oh, okay. So yeah, I mean there there isn't an actual exchange of sodium and potassium by the model. It's it it it's I mean it's simulated it's just doing it with electricity. Yeah, because essentially, I mean the ions are just a means of moving electrical current, mm-hmm. basically. And, yeah, and those are technically simulated, and then the the response goes. So is it is it possible? This is like sci-fi stuff, but is is it possible to let's say have a computer feed in some sort of information into the cells, have the cells create a computation and then feed it back into the computer. So can you go backwards? Wait, wait, come again. Like, so, so, <laughs> so basically like it, if you have this, like a group of cells in a dish or whatever, and you have it or a single cell or whatever, mm-hmm. a single cell that's integrated within a network and Basically, the those cells have a biological capability to compute things or to pass information through their own biological means. Mm-hmm. Is it feasible to turn that dynamic clamp system in reverse where normally, you know, the cells are, are feeding their information into the computer? The computer is then modifying the currents to inject something back into the cells in order to test a property. But is it possible for, let's say... It might be slow and it might be inefficient, but is it possible to say, like, take a problem and send it from the computer to the cells and have the cells create a computation and then send it back? (laughs) So, like, the cells become a processor? Uh, That's an interesting idea. I I have never, you know, thought of anything (laughs) of, you know, come across anything. Instead of artificial intelligence, it's like artificial information that's being like processed bio, by like biological intelligence yeah yeah you send a, a mathematical or like a computer problem into the cell see how it solves yeah, yeah 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 see like what's the most energy efficient way to solve a problem uh, well they there there are uh some experiments that uh do touch on, the, on that but i'm not very familiar yeah and i think they they also have to do with uh Computer, they, they, they are also related with machine learning, um, yeah. principles too. So they, 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 they try to, uh, improve machine learning based on uh, machine learning algorithms based on, um, solutions that are, you know, found in by bacteria or, um, you know, fungi or whatever. Huh. I still get a kick out of that. They did that experiment where I think I talked about it in the last podcast or maybe a couple of podcasts ago where, they wanted to understand like the the most efficient ways to tunnel the underground subway system in a city and they took i don't know it was some sort of worm or some bacteria or something like that that it's like essentially they like they mapped out the city and they put it in a dish and they put the bacteria in there and the bacteria rule or whatever organism it was could figure out the most energy efficient way to get from one pathway to the next you know, and so then they just took the the burrowing animals or whatever. They took the maps that they created and then dug the tunnels under the city to see like what was the most efficient way to get there. That was pretty wild. So that's sort of like a pie in the sky sci fi example. But <laughs> so okay, so so been backing up to the computational neuroscience in general. So so first of all, what was the some of the questions that you were asking in specific? You talked about like the sodium potassium pump pump currents and what was you know some of the findings that came out of out of that work all right so the main research question 
was uh, does the persistent sodium current interact with the sodium potassium pump at all, right? So, because one, the persistent sodium current is an represents inward flow of sodium and the sodium potassium pump gets activated when sodium goes inside the cell uh, and, it and it gets activated by ejecting uh, sodium outside of the cell, right? So it tries to keep balance. Um, our main result is that they do interact. I mean, no surprise there, but the way that they interact is interesting because they uh, are capable of forming, um, these two currents alone are capable of forming a rhythm, rhythm generating mechanism. So it's like a little engine. Just the two currents themselves. Yeah. Uh huh. Huh. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. And we, we, we have this uh, two dimensional model that uh, only has these two currents and leak and it, it replicates the behavior. Uh, Weird. Really well. So is there, so if it, if it only takes, let's say those few currents in order to create the behavior, what's the advantage of having so many extra channels on the cell? Well, there, this is only an experiment, right? And we were yeah. only, uh, you know, putting the cell, uh, under some stress that, yeah, yeah. you know, probably wouldn't, uh, be feeling, uh, in the, you know, its normal life. Yeah. Yeah. It loses some of the flexibility and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but it, it's, it's more of a proof of principle that, you know, these two currents, um, are probably the main drivers. And of, of these rhythms and there are there could be you know other currents that more more than more than anything they represent uh, one mechanism of um, of rhythm generation and is not the only but is one very robust uh, mechanism that you know could be there maybe for um, activated for you know situations in which uh, an individual is under heavy stress mm. What specifically what we observed is when we upregulated the um, persistent sodium current and the uh, the pump current, you know, also um, accordingly, uh, the neuron went from this, you know, uh, let's call it like a slow rhythm with you no know, low spike frequency and small amplitude of the voltage in the oscillation, and when and when it was high, the it was a high voltage amplitude and the spiking frequency grew. You know significantly. Um, so let's say that a, a cell is capable of you know this, uh, you know relaxed and relaxed rhythm and you know uh, you know more intense rhythm, and those are situations in which you know are, are important for us, like just walking faster, breathing faster. They are very adaptive and survival behaviors. Ah, so so. This this so this is an interesting question. So, when it comes to modeling itself, so so looking at the cell and 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 using models in order to understand the properties of the cell, especially with like a direct interface with the dynamic clamp is one thing. But but with actual like neural network type of models that are created that have a bunch of cells within them. I assume you have to supply the cells with certain amounts of currents or pumps or channels or whatever it might be. And so when you're going to when you're when you're working to build a, a network model and you're looking at the individual cells within them, let's say that you know that there's a minimum number of currents that are necessary in order to elicit the property that you're looking for, like bursting, for example, right? You can have the pump current and what it was sodium potassium current or the what, what was the other one you're looking at yeah, it's persistent sodium persistent sodium persistent sodium current and the pump current and elite current that's all you need you can have the cells burst exactly like you want them to uh if you're looking at building a network model in order to just sort of look at that black box like input output just use the network model to compute things like so how do you then determine what are all the channels that you put on the cells? Like, because a lot of the models have like, you know, 30 different currents or 30, you know, 15 different currents on each individual cell. And it ends up having the same property as it would with just a single, 
you know, two currents. So is there like ad, is there advantageous things for adding more on there? Um, there are advantageous uh, details. Well, there there's some advantages to uh, in- include specific details in the model, but maybe not all of them come from um, from uh, the just the equations, uh, just the current equations. But some of them could come from morphology. Because I mean, when uh, the way that we model the neuron is a u- unique compartment neuron, so it has only one compartment. It's essentially, like one ball, and everything happens inside this like ball. Oh, sure. Right, but uh, neurons aren't like that. Not all neurons. Some neurons are long. Some neurons have dendrites, and it depends on you know, it depends on the detail that you want to give. All of these can be modeled with you know equations, and you know there are you don't have to write them. There are uh, <laughs> There are tools that some poor soul did. <laughs> there are tools, and there's people that they're dedicated to this kind of work. Yeah. Uh, so the more I dive into models, the more it just like explodes my head. Just thinking about how complex some of these things are. Because we you know, we bring in a, you know, and I've been guilty of it as well, where you do an experiment and you just want an extra figure or something, and you're like, I'm going to add a model at the end. <laughs> And see if it replicates the behavior. And as I'm as I as I've learned over time, it's like you can make the model do whatever you want. And so <laughs> it doesn't really add much to the experiment if like yeah. that's what you're using it for. <laughs> yeah. To just try to replicate what you see in a biological Yeah, So system. I have this model I had this cool experiment and then look at these mathematics. <laughs> yeah, let's see if we can do it with look math. at this simulation that <laughs> does the same thing. Yeah. That was yeah, I I got uh, appreciation of that along the way. Although I will say many of the insights gleaned from the models saved an enormous amount of time for like testing hypotheses, like just sort of narrowing down hypotheses. Exactly. And that is what it's for, right? So you can run run some Thompson simulations. It will take you a couple of days. Yeah. And then you'll have, you know, a thousand questions answered. And then maybe you, you can go from there. And then and then do an experiment. Yeah. But don't forget about experiments because they're important. Yeah. Because there's no model without experiment. Otherwise, you just, you know. It's just theoretical. At, yeah, it's, just all, it's all theoretical. <laughs> Which is where, where, where social media is at. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we, get, we, get, we stop at, like, the, at the theoretical neuroscience level. And it's like, wait, we have to actually test it in the actual system itself, which is more, can be more complex sometimes. But is there, so with a lot of the the modeling type of experiments, or at least the modeling biological interface type of experiments to understand cells is, especially like with dynamic clamp and stuff like that, is there sort of a uh, advantage of some of the newer AI model type of things that are really making a push? No AI model. Like AI models being able to comp like compute information by themselves and create hypotheses i mean they're useful <laughs> i guess i i think that you you shouldn't be um you know threatened by technology yeah yeah and these things can be useful but you know they're they're just computers they're they're, they're not very smart they are fast but they're smart huh. that's so, a <laughs> that's actually a good way to think about it they're fast but yeah and and I, that's what I've noticed a, a lot, at least with ChatGPT. Sometimes is like because I'll, I'll play around with that once in a while. Um, is that like you still have to? It's it's sort of like like coding. You still have to know which how to drive the machine to get what you want out of it. Like if you just ask it for some hypotheses or things like that, it just kind of gives you some random things, and it it might be due to the level at which, you know, a lot of our questions are is we're asking the unknown and trying to solve the unknown. And so using a computer model of things that are trained on known information is not going to get you very far, you know? And, uh, so maybe that's part of it, but I still did notice, like, it wasn't exactly just like this golden key that unlocked all these, this panacea of ideas and hypotheses and testable things. It was, like, it would just give you some general information, and you're like, that didn't help at all. <laughs> yeah. People think that you can also, like, ask ChatGPT to code for you. 
I mean, it's oh, I tried. That was like it's useful for a couple of things, but yeah, I actually I code with ChatGPT right next to me, and like whenever I have a question, I just asked it. It's oh, perfect yeah. because it's like having a perfect, like a not perfect, uh, an expert coder like right next to me, and I'll ask him any questions. <laughs> that's that's good. But you yeah, know, I'm writing my code. I'm yeah, not asking it to write it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I have I did notice like it it saves a lot of time troubleshooting code and stuff too, because I'm I'm a pretty terrible coder. Like I can code, oh, well, <laughs> I can read some code. How about that? <laughs> there's a, I've noticed there's a big difference between being able to like copy and paste code and run code as there is to create code. Like I can, I can run it. I can't create it. There's a whole different ball game. Like I have to, every time I want to insert something, I have to go in and copy paste and try to like try to uh adapt it to whatever it is that I'm trying to do. And then I'll have someone that's an actual coder. And I'll meet with them or something, and they just type, just random, like just bloop, bloop, type it, and it's just zoom, it runs. And I'm like, how, how did you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like driving, man. It takes practice. Yeah, it's it, well, it's just like it's a different language. It really is. It's it's English. It's English. I know. It's just like a, it's like an abstraction of English. I think it'll be harder if you're like, if you don't know any English and trying to learn oh, to that's code. Fair. That that would be horrible. That'd be way harder. Is it? Is it? Um, do because you, you speak Spanish? Yeah, Spanish, right? Yeah, Spanish. Is like the Spanish-speaking countries is the code in Spanish? I don't think so. Or is it I still mean, in English? I mean, who would develop it? Oh, uh, that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's something I never thought about before. <laughs> uh-uh. Huh? Interesting. So, okay, so ChatGPT is not going to be a, the dynamic clamp expert, most likely. It would be kind of interesting. Like, probably know a couple of things. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wild though if? If you could patch a cell or patch a, you know, put it, even put in like a multi electrode array recording or a dual multi electrode array recording probe that's able to control plus, you know, get the readout, which there isn't really very good things for that yet. We can either like listen to a lot of cells at once or we can control a lot of cells at once, but doing both at the same time is not very good. Um, but let's say, you know, even at a single cell level or, you know, eventually we'll get to the point where we can control and read from multiple cells at the same time. Could you imagine if you could hook that up to like ChatGPT, for example, and then have it run a bunch of experiments on the cells themselves? It'd be kind of cool to see what it would come out with. Hmm. Or it would just explode the cell right away and wouldn't get anything out of it. But Well... It depends on how long the cell is going to stay alive. Yeah, I know. That's the problem. It's like, <laughs> they don't last that long. Now, you could get ChatGPT to do your experiment. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, just uh, just hook it in and say, I want you to do all this stuff. And I want you to find something. No, say, I, I want you to find something novel, some novel property about these cells. That'd be wild. Then it would finally replace the experimentalist. See, that's what I'm, I'm holding my breath that. A lot of data scientists may be, you know, worried about losing positions or something because of some of the things that these AI models can do. But at least as of now, it can't do the surgery. So (laughs) (laughs) there's still some sort of hope for job security. (laughs) But it is, I think it's, I think a lot of the the new models are cool. So anyways, beyond just blapping about that, uh, moving into some of the work that you're doing in the computational realm or computational well everything you do is a lot of stuff is computational but but moving into the data science type of realm you're also doing some work right now looking at population health data right yeah i'm doing this epidemiological data analysis about you know the births in the united states and what we found is this there there is like a consistent trend of decreasing births yeah that was scary or maybe. I don't know if it's scary or not. There's sort of like... The, the United States population keeps growing, but the birth rate keeps decreasing. Yeah. So it's it's uh, compensated with immigration. Oh. See, that's I didn't even put that together yet. Interesting. But I did notice, though, that I've tried my hand a few times. I think I talked to you about this in the gym one time. Is like scrubbing those databases is not for the faint of heart. It seems very simple, like on the on the surface. You just you go in, you find some data, and you're like, oh, I just want to see how many birds there are per year. 
and then you hit go and it's not that simple like that data is dense which <laughs> i underappreciate i mean the cdc provides uh data that is literally giving one row to each birth so you'll end up with you know gigabytes of data that you, all you really are trying to is count how many babies are there was yeah. it one or two I, like I wanted to, I, I, because I, I looked up the birth chart one time or whatever. Because I remember you showed me that like oscillatory thing, and I thought, oh, this would be kind of a cool post, you know. And I thought, all right, I pulled up the birth data data set. All right, here we go. I'm just going to download it, and I hit download, and it said it would be ready in like 13 hours. I was like, what the heck? I just need to know like the number every year. But no, it was every row was a single birth, so it gave you information on every single birth since because I was overzealous and i thought oh, i'll just do it since 1970 or 75 since we have you know since the data is there and it was literally like a, basically an excel sheet with like every row is a single birth since 1970 mm -hmm. and my computer just about exploded but yeah that was that was wild well you need to have the right resources i don't know at children's we have these uh lovely um cluster computer cluster we've been used at our dis uh, disposal. Basically, unlimited storage, and uh, you can claim how much whatever RAM or um, cores you want for your data. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's how I did it. Um, and it, it really is, they, they all repeated each other, so as long as you, you write code to count the babies in one... Um, for one of these uh, data files, you yeah. you can apply them for all of them. I did notice that it was like the way that the data was organized was pretty impressive compared to let's say uh, you know just like a normal data set file that you get in the lab that someone sends you. You know, there's sort of just stuff everywhere, but it's very like rigid, and uh, I think there's a I think there's an underappreciated amount of work that goes into making those those files actually accessible and even though they seemed like they seemed on the surface almost illegible like when you just open up the file but when i ran it through python it was very good at indexing everything so there was a, a method to the madness yeah it, and we have to appreciate why does the cdc care to do, provide all these gigabytes of data and not just give us a number right like yeah, that's true. Saying. So, and there is more information in this uh, in this data, not just the number of births, but it's also you know why, like the history of these, you know, the mother who gave birth, uh, smoking history, uh, the mother's education, father's education, um, maternal age. There's um, you know prenatal care. There's all these variables that are giving us, and we can also further analyze that if they were were to just give us, you know, the simplified data, it would be lost. And they provide this data, you know, for us, you know, uh, scientists to yeah. look at it and, you know, give some insights to the, to the, you know, population about it. And I didn't even, I didn't even realize that because I made a, I made a simple plot of like the obesity trends in the U.S. over time, which is always a fun one. If you want to see a, a chart go exponentially up and, uh, you know, so I took it and I plugged it into the code interpreter and I, I just plugged the data set in the code interpreter and I wanted to search, basically like search through the data and just see what, what was interesting that I could find. And like it took quite a while actually because there were so many different variables that were controlled for. Like it was, you know, I wanted to just look up how much obesity there was in the U.S. over time and it was, you know, it then the options that I had to to refine the data were by like gender, education, income, parent, like parental status and like exercise level, estimated vegetable intake level. Like it was an enormous amount of variables that you had to pick or whatever. And so creating a simple chart of how much obesity there is wasn't in, was not exactly the most like straightforward type of thing to do because and and I should have known better as a scientist. You know, you you try to control for all the variables yourself, and uh, 
it was actually there. But the, the, but the thing that I was that thought was interesting though was a lot of times you hear in the media about you know how some of these databases are manipulated or whatever, and uh, but when you actually look at the pure amount of data in the the detail level it's almost like it becomes a little bit challenging to think about how that would have even been done just as a scientist you know because there's a lot there yeah i mean compiling data it's is very complicated and faking it is even harder right <laughs> right because like it's all linked to so many different things and so it's it doesn't take that much to figure out what's the fishy data and what's not because it falls apart very quickly the trends and stuff but anyway, so so you're looking at the births. What's the what's the what's the goal? Is this for uh, data driven insight into population health, or is it being used as like a diagnostic type of thing, or or what's the what's the end goal? Well, the end goal is definitely to assess uh, what's going on with the birth. Uh, and you know the the maternity in the United States. Why is it decreasing? Ah, that's true. I think that that would be uh, the most important question. And we right now we have a, a phenomenon in the data um, because of the lockdowns uh, that came from the COVID nineteen virus. Uh, there's um, there's there was a decrease of uh, births during um no specific time and specifically it was like teenage moms that dropped the most during that age really uh, during that time well oh yeah well i guess that would make sense kind of um but it, it also you know affected other trends so we need to first understand how it affected uh you know what it was what was going on before what was it decreasing before and how uh, it affected the people that are going on now because we do know that, it, for example, um, people, um, younger, um, younger women, started putting off um, giving birth after uh, this COVID-19. And um, on the other hand, um, it's like late 30s women, uh, they started to, you know, the, the rate of birth on that population started to increase give huh. following uh the covid virus covid 19 virus so we just need to really have a good intuition of what is going on uh to assess you know the what, what's what's happening with the maternity in the united states we gotta look at the amount of uh dog adoptions that went on during covid <laughs> <laughs> over time i imagine yeah. it just like spike so with the with the decrease though because it was a pretty i mean the, the the slope of the decrease in births was actually pretty significant yeah i mean it's pretty it's, it's it's a pretty steady downward trend every year yeah it looks like a stock chart of some company that's just like starting to downfall yeah <laughs> it's like up down up down up down up down mm -hmm. um but when do you know like i have have you gone back further in the data to figure out like when that started to occur uh that's a good question actually i haven't tried it yeah i should I'll put it on my list. It'd be kind of interesting to see, you know, when the trend started the downturn and what significant events were happening around that time where suddenly, like, births just started plummeting. I have I have this access to... Uh, I just received these uh, birth data from New Zealand. Oh, yeah. I plotted it, and it, it doesn't follow the same trend. Really? Yeah, not at all. Interesting. It has, uh, so it's probably not biological. It has some seasonality, yeah. Um, but it's it's uh, it's way it has it's way noisier because there are less people that are born there, so oh. there's there's a greater um, you know error in the measurement, like sampling error. Oh, I I completely over because uh, here in in the states you will have yeah. like on the hundred of thousands of birds each month, and in New Zealand, it was around. It was just a couple thousand oh, each okay. month. So there's a two. It's not as much. Two magnitudes of now it's two magnitudes of difference. <laughs> but the seasonality was gone. Well, th that affects the air. 
of, oh. of your sampling. Oh, I see, I see. I see. And um, but the season it also changed. If you know, I I'll have to run some tests to you know be for sure. But uh, it seemed like they had two peaks huh. at the beginning and the end of the year. Because we have one right just yeah. in the summer, mm-hmm. which is is that just behavioral? Do we do we know why that like do we know whether that's biological or whether it's behavioral? Because some people say you know yeah we have more birds in the summer because in the winter people are bored and locked in their house so what else is there to do? You know, <laughs> I would argue that if you're locked with your spouse for a longer time the the the, the activity required to produce a baby probably goes down. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Uh, but the the other. The other argument is that there might be some seasonality of uh, fertility. That is the most interesting aspect of this because, I um, mean, if you really look at just the time where the peak is usually in July or August, yeah. and you backtrack seven months, what's that, November? Doesn't make it, you know, what, what's so romantic about November? Right, that's what I mean. Like, that, it doesn't seem yeah, like it, there's... It would be very interesting to find uh, whether there is a seasonality with the... Um, Specifically, what here in the northern hemisphere? Yeah, um, you know, with um, especially because it's like November, like September, October, November, like the fall is very much like a transition period between summer and winter, and so I would almost expect you know the most reproduction to occur during a stable phase, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, or maybe everyone's getting freaky for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. That could Halloween be. babies. It's interesting stuff, though. Anyway, so you're looking at the the births. Anything else that you're scrubbing at the moment? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm just right now I'm forecasting. Yeah. Um, the so it, it's a different uh, type of model. We talked about computational models and those, uh, you know, more like biophysical. And now I'm doing more of uh, statistical models. Yeah. And I mean, they, there's just probability and stats. Um, you know, but, um, I'm just getting started on this, on this work. I'm just trying to see what, um, what will come out of it. So, I don't have any exciting forecasts at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> It'll be exciting to see what's going through. It's a lot of work anyways. Yeah, it is. It, and sometimes it, like all my code is like, what, 10 lines of code? But, and it probably took me like 10 minutes to write. But learning how to write it. And oh, yeah. Thinking about writing it and optimizing it so it's only 10 lines. Yeah. That's what, that's what, that's the really work. It's the, uh, the age old adage where, you know, the plumber comes over and fixes the, the pipe in 10 minutes and then charges a couple hundred dollars. And the person says, how did this cost 200 bucks? You were here for five minutes. And said, you're, you're paying for all the training that it took to fix it in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than, uh, just the, the time itself. But anyways, all right, Ricardo, coming up on an hour. All right. Thanks for uh, doing the podcast, man. No problem. Good luck with the the data science going forward. Appreciate it. And uh, I, the amount of patience that you must have to sit there while your models are running, I go insane. So good on you for that. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> All right. Well, rss.com slash neural network, Spotify, Apple, Google, any podcast player. That's about it. All right. Have a good week. Dope. All right, see you, Ricardo.